Welcome to the Wild and Curious Podcast, a show that's part travel, part feminism, and completely inspired by extraordinary women worldwide. I'm Teresa Christine. And I'm Suzanne Schmetting. So today we're going to be talking about another woman from history. These are fun episodes, by the way. I'm so excited about this. They are fun. It's like preparing for your thesis. Yeah. And actually, now that you put it that way, it seems less fun. Um, <laughs> You're like, oh, actually, <laughs> like, but we, we're going to make it fun. <laughs> we're we're going to make it fun. But yeah, no, I think I think preparing for a thesis is hard work. And, and I did do a lot of research. And, you know, I think because the last history woman that we talked about, Nellie Bly, like we had we had an outside expert. We did. You are our expert. I'm the expert. Yeah. So it, it feels a little bit nerve wracking and I, I see now why I'm not a doctor. Um, but also I'm, I'm happy to share the information that I now know about our person. And I think it's just, it's really cool because today working as a woman in science mm -hmm. is very challenging. It is hard. Okay. And back in the 1950s, it was even worse. Right. And, you know, like we've, we've talked about and talked to a lot of women in STEM who are actively trying to encourage other women to get into STEM. So the fact that this woman was was doing something like that, you know, 70 years ago, it's it's pretty mind-blowing, especially what she was able to accomplish. So what's crazy about this story is it's kind of this hidden bit of history. I think today more and more people are becoming educated about this woman, but how did you like how did she get on your radar? I was listening to another podcast and this woman with muscular dystrophy, she saw this Olympian athlete and she was like, I think we have the same genetic defect and like no one would believe her. And she did all of this research and came to find out years later that like this tiny variation in a chromosome, it was like, it was the twin of what made her, you know, very ill in her body waste as, as the same variation that made this other athlete like an Olympian. So I just, I got really interested in the idea of, of DNA and like variations and that kind of thing. So I started doing research on women who work with DNA. And when I did that, this name kept popping up and it was just like, oh, there's this controversy. And you know me, I was just like, we love drama. drama. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Not our own, but you know, other people's it's like, great. Yeah. It's terrific. Uh, so, so I started doing more and more research and then I don't know if, uh, if you've heard, but there's a pandemic right now. Oh yeah. Mm. Um, so, so I was just like, so what, what is that like? Like, how does that affect, you know, the things that are happening now? And, and so without really meaning to, I got kind of interested in this woman and then, and then I pitched it to you and you were like, yeah, let's yeah, do it. Yeah, we have to. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking all about Rosalind Franklin. Yay. A chemist and x-ray crystallographer whose work was central to understanding the molecular structure of DNA. She was she was born in 1920 yes. in England, London. Uh, Notting Hill, to be precise, Notting love. Notting Hill. Yeah, I probably butchered that accent, but it's fine. You did. Um, okay. Well, that was <laughs> that was a really fast agreement. So she was she was born July twenty fifth, nineteen twenty, and she was born into a family of five children. 
to a, a wealthy Jewish family, working Jewish family. There were several activists and actually socialists and suffragists in her family. And one of the things that I really loved finding out while I was doing some of the research is that Rosalind's mother, who didn't work, you know, she she was this traditional housewife uh, and, you know, she loved her family and she had a lot of responsibilities and she worked with charities, but she never actually got her education. So she was very adamant that her daughters would receive the same education as the boys in the family. That's great. For the for a child who was born in the 1920s or in 1920, that's mm-hmm. almost revolutionary. Well, it is revolutionary. And there, there are so many references to you know, like the different, the different politics in the family and, and how, you know, argument was really encouraged and discussion was encouraged. So yes, that's right. She always, she was a very talkative, like, yeah, I don't want to say argumentative person, but she liked talking about ideas and yeah, exactly. Um, there's a great quote from her sister, uh, where she says, argument was a friendly thing, discussion encouraged, and Rosalind had a good sense of humor and a strong sense of justice and persistence. So I Aww. thought that was, yeah, I thought that was like a really cool way to describe her. And obviously she has some familial bias, but it is it is really interesting when you compare that with how she was described later in her career as this very argumentative person. Mm. So described by men. <laughs> correct. Surprisingly enough, described by yeah. men. So she she grew up, her mom obviously wanted her to get an education. Mm-hmm. And she by the time she was a teenager, she knew she wanted to be a scientist. She was very sure of herself. Oh yeah. Yeah. She was she was always she was already actually experimenting with doing photographs in her grandparents in Buckinghamshire. I think. Yes, Buckinghamshire. Uh, yes, Buckinghamshire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she was, you know, she was already playing around in the dark room there and, you know, mm-hmm. like playing with lizards and trying to find out what they ate. And <laughs> <laughs> I was doing that when I was five. <laughs> I mean, I still do it, but, you know, whatever, whatever rocks your Saturday night. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, by, by uh, 1938, she was 18. She started attending Cambridge, uh, studying natural sciences. And this was a year before war broke out. Uh, and so her sister had mentioned that she worked really hard because she wanted to find a good job. And she knew that it was harder for women in the industry, but she also never really thought of herself as, as changing that stereotype. She just wanted to do the best possible work within that framework of like, oh, it's really hard for women. Yeah, she was just focused on doing good work. So in 1942, uh, after she, you know, finished, got her A-levels in Cambridge, she began working for the British Coal Utilization Research Association on the porosity of coal. What is porosity? I'm so glad you asked, Teresa. (laughs) Um, So if you think of the word porous like it's ah, all of those yes. yeah like all of the little nooks and crannies and she the holiness just, of coal the holiness yeah like mm-hmm. not in the not in you know the the pope athena sense but like like the the pores in your skin yeah um so she she discovered heat properties and fundamentals on the nature of carbon and graphite and her work led to the development of safer gas masks and it is work that is still used on a lot of like carbon-based products today. And it was this huge thing since 
coal and carbon became this incredible resource for uh, for Britain, for the war, for for the industry. So yeah, I mean, it, people were really reliant on it, and a lot of people had jobs that right. were reliant on that. So she did like life saving work. She did. Yeah, she did life saving work. And, and, you know, she's like 22 at the time. So that's, that's the first major, major contribution that like, is part of her legacy that you'll hear about when you talk about Rosalind Franklin. So that's, that's one. And after that, uh, so after the war, she moved to Paris uh, in 1947. And by just about everyone's account, she was super happy there. She, she said it was just a really wonderful place to be because it was international. She loved the Parisian way of life. Were they, were the people there as like, did she find it to be as challenging gender wise, like being a woman versus being a man in science there? Well, and, and that's actually what I love about it. She said that she loved that, uh, no one cared if she was a woman and, and she, she was doing a lot of work and she was talking to people about her ideas. And it's really where she perfected her, her studies of crystallography. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of talk about how she, you know, she really wasn't known and, you know, she was kind of under the blankets of history, but actually she was very well respected for her work in carbon and crystallography by the time she moved back to London. Now, crystallography, I also had to look this one up. Yep. It's basically the study of crystals, which sounds woo-woo, but actually like, like everything is made of crystal. Like, it is. you know, it's the study of material, essentially. It's the experimental science of determining the arrangement of atoms and crystalline solids. And she, she became this expert at taking their pictures, which she had, you know, been doing as a kid, like taking pictures of everything, but there is a way to do it in, in x-ray work where if you take an x-ray of the thing, the humidity within the camera can diffract the, the, the atoms and, and the fibers of it. So you can sort of see the actual makeup of it, which is really, really important for her next big sort of discovery, which is photograph 51, which is where really all the controversy surrounds. Yeah. And I think, so once we get into photograph 51, we're talking about DNA. Right. And I think today we can take for granted what we know about DNA and the the structure that it's a double helix, but we actually didn't know this a hundred years ago. We yeah. had no idea. Like we just were really in the dark and there were scientists kind of racing to figure out like what was the reason for genetic inheritance and like what did dna look like right so they there was there was a scientist uh by the name of pauling and he was you know he was on track to become this person to find uh find the structure of dna because although scientists knew that you know the that genetics were inherited they couldn't really figure out how or why so a lot of scientists sort of at the same time began working on this quote unquote race. So she, uh, she got a letter from John Randall, uh, from King's college in Cambridge to come to work with Morris Wilkins. This is where it gets into like the drama soap opera stuff. I'm ready. I've got my popcorn. (laughs) I've got my soda. (laughs) So she, according to her, 
And according to her family, she got this letter saying that she was going to be in charge of the lab. She was going to have all of her, you know, research assistants and doctoral students. And Morris Wilkins or Dr. Wilkins was going to be on her team. She gets there for whatever reason. Randall isn't there. She doesn't have the letter or like Dr. Wilkins doesn't see it. So she arrives in London after traveling from Paris and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You are my assistant. Like, go get me some coffee, queen. And she's uh, like, except no queen. <laughs> there would be no respect there. No, no, no. I mean, but he did call her miss. You know, he he said miss uh, mm. Franklin instead of doctor, just like all of these little ways to slight her. And yeah, and she's like, yo, I'm a doctor. And uh, and also I was invited to come here. Right. And I'm a bona fide expert. So back up. And they still, even though they had this interaction, like they still had to work alongside each other. Yes, they did. But it got so cantankerous that eventually, like they they knew that there was uh an A portion of the DNA and the B portion. And they were supposed to have been working on that together to try and discover the nature of it. But they, it just got so volatile that they agreed that he would work on A and she would work on B. Like, so These were- are your toys. <laughs> I'll play with my toys. Yeah. Stay away from me. <laughs> yeah. She was just like, nah. so she didn't have any equipment. So she had to build her own x-ray equipment to start the study of DNA. Wow. Uh, I know. I don't even, how do you even do that? That's very impressive. That's so cool. I mean, she, she had some knowledge of it already because of the crystallography work she had done in Paris, but like she had to find a way to, to make the humidity within the camera stable so that any kind of x-ray diffraction would actually show what was happening inside the DNA. Because otherwise the, the heat, the water could, uh, could just sort of mess with the picture until it wasn't really usable at all. Yeah. So they, they did not get along. She wasn't even allowed in the men's common room. And, you know, like that was where people were having the actual discussions. So she wasn't really allowed to, she was like a second class doctor. She was a second class doctor. Right. And, and, you know, just not being able to kind of discuss through these ideas or sort of argue about them or or have any kind of debates. Like a lot of people think that that might've been part of the reason that she did uh, set aside her famous photograph 51. So the plot thickens, obviously. Yes. So she's built this machine. She has a doctoral assistant who's helping her and she takes this photograph and it shows that the that the DNA is not, is helical in nature because before they had always gotten these different sort of pictures and what they didn't realize it was A and B superimposed on top of each other. But photograph 51 is really the first one where it shows that it's two separate things, that it's a mm. helix. So it's it's this huge discovery. And she published some of her findings and she presented it to a private committee, but then she set the photograph aside. Somewhere in her desk, somewhere in her office. Somewhere that someone could see it. What supposedly happened, you know, from from different different sources mm-hmm. is that either Dr. Wilkins or her doctoral assistant took the photograph. Yeah. And and was looking it over and somehow showed it to Watson and Crick. Now Watson and Crick were to other scientists who were in this race to discover 
the, the like design of DNA. Yes. So they're they're working at a, a different college, and Dr. Wilkins is friends with with them, and he goes and he shows mm, convenient. them convenient, very convenient. So somehow they start they see the photograph. And they are already sort of working on a model, like low key, and they've just gone ahead without their total proofs. And Rosalind Franklin was very notorious for, for like not publishing anything until she had like proof, 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 proof. And Watson and Crick were much more like, let's go ahead. We've got penises. And Mm, yeah, yeah, because why not? So they saw this photograph, they built the model, they published the paper, and along with Dr. Morris... M. Wilkins, they win the Nobel Prize. So they basically, it's presumed, we can't prove who, who took the photo or do we, I'm, I'm just confused, like, do we know that someone took the photo or is it like, we're just we sort of guessing? Oh, okay. We don't know. Yeah. So it's presumed that somehow that photo got into the hands of Watson and Crick and that was able to kind of solidify the the ideas and thoughts that they had already, right? It's presumed, but like they've definitely referenced seeing photograph 51. And now it's very, very clear that like hers was the only work that was doing the kind of clarity and detail needed to make that jump to be even to to be able to build that model. So they, they definitely saw it. She definitely had published a paper, but shown it to a private committee. Mm-hmm. The real idea is whether or not the assistant took it to Dr. Wilkins and then he took it to them or Dr. Wilkins did it, took it, did it himself. Yeah. So they, either way, that's a pretty crappy situation for Rosalind. It is because this, this paper gets published and mm-hmm. Watson and Crick, essentially get the credit well and to be like to be totally fair they had been working on a lot of the dna structure like you know they were already doing their research they had a really clear idea they couldn't they couldn't like it was the last piece of the puzzle yeah yes absolutely they had done a lot of work as well right but the the kind of final jenga block right that they you know that they needed was that was that exactly so a bit of the controversy has to do with you know she did publish some of her findings and you know she she set the photograph aside and and like it is it is taxpayer money that was you know funding the research and like no science should be hidden you know it's like the code of scientists to share all their research so it is very very important thing so it's it's a good thing that you know that the mystery kind of started to get solved there, but it's just the way that they went about it. And then the fact that they get the Nobel Peace Prize and don't recognize her. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I know. that's the thing that I think people are, especially now, retroactively looking back and they're like, that's messed up. Yeah. No, it's super duper messed up. So, so one thing I wanted to ask you in all of your research for this how did we come to discover that photograph 51 was stolen and like like what was that how did well, we come to find out oh actually Rosalind did a lot of work for this well i don't i don't want to say stolen just because we don't that photograph 51 was borrowed used, used. it was used in the research okay um, 
Very diplomatic of you. Um, but, you. But how did we like come to that discovery? James Watson wrote a book and he wrote all about, you know, kind of the drama and trials and tribulations of finding it. Mm-hmm. And that was really where she started to get some notoriety that, that she had taken this photograph and... And and that's where he really the, the only place that he really credits her, but he credits her in oh. such a disparaging way. How? Oh my gosh! I I pulled this to 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 tell you to just fire me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just like let's see what Teresa wants to do on Tuesday. Um, so he 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 writes. I suspected in the beginning, uh, Morris had hoped that Rosie would calm down, yet mere inspection suggested that she would not easily bend. Gross already. <laughs> By choice, she did not emphasize her feminine qualities. Though her features were strong, she was not unattractive. It might have been quite stunning had she taken a mild interest in clothes. And, you know, so he goes on. I wish you could see my face right now. I wish everybody <laughs> in the world could see my face. Like, yeah. Mm-mm. And and so, like, the you know, and there's more where he just goes on and on about her appearance. And like this- it should also be noted that the book that Watson released that includes this information came out 10 years after she died. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of like there's this dead woman who um, did a lot of research that has helped you get the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. And you're talking about how she looks. Oh, um, yeah. And I don't want to I don't I don't want to be mean and be like. Watson, ah. but I am kind of like, guys, this this was a very toxic situation that you created for a woman who was working really hard. Yeah, but they they don't they didn't think of it that way, and many you know, of course, icky dudes don't. So the the last thing I'm going to tell you that's gonna that's gonna really make you mad, which I'm going to enjoy listening. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready to be mad. Okay. So the last the last part of that quote says. Clearly, Rosie had to go or be put in her place. Given her belligerent moods, it would be very difficult to, for Morris to maintain a dominant position that would allow him to think unhindered about DNA. I'll show you belligerent. <laughs> Just, ew. Yeah. All of it's so icky. I think I definitely can see how people would read that and be like, Mm, okay, I know you got the Nobel Peace Prize, but now you're like, gonna be in a jerk. You, yeah, you suck. <laughs> like you thought these things, and that's one thing, but to actually put them in print and just like talk about this woman who has passed away, it's pretty yucky. Not only to put it in print, but like to put it in print and think that it's totally okay. And furthermore, for all of his editors to be like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. They're like, mm, excellent. Yeah, totally. So cat's out of the bag. Rosalind Franklin did die. I'm I'm sorry to have what? kind of jumped, jumped the timeline there when we that were talking about the book. That wasn't part of my research. <laughs> um, but I guess aside from the fact that she basically figured out what DNA looks like and she took photograph 51, which is like the most famous photo Mm -hmm. of DNA. How has she changed science? How has she changed history? By all accounts, you know, she was, she was a little bit miffed, but then she was kind of like, well, they, they did the work. So good on them. And then she just kind of moved on, which I think is so badass. Classy. Yeah. Super classy. And she, so after two years, uh, she left to go to Birkbeck college and she worked on uh, what's called tobacco mosaic virus, 
this virus, it's, it's a very heat resistant virus that it was destroying a lot of plants and, you know, scientists couldn't figure it out. So she applied her crystallography techniques to this and discovered an entirely new structure of virus. What an amazing woman. Yeah. Super amazing. Uh, and, and so her contributions to this led directly to the, the eradication of it. You know, she was also yeah. starting to work on the polio virus before she passed away. And, and so she starts to work on this virus structure on plants, and then she moves on to animals. So she continued to publish and work all the way up through her death in 1956. And the fact that she, she contributed a huge, huge knowledge of not only carbon, but DNA, but virus structures, like these three major scientific findings in three completely different fields, all by age 37, which she's a badass. So intelligent and so dedicated. And especially in a space where like men are treating you in that way. Mm-hmm. Where people who are your colleagues are treating you in that way, the fact that she persevered and was able to accomplish all of that is so incredibly admirable. Yeah, and there's also an uh, like an institute or something that is set up in her it, name. Yeah, there there are a couple actually. Uh, okay. Yeah, so in 2004, the Rosalind Franklin Medical University became the first medical institution in the U.S. to honor a female scientist with a namesake. Um, and the Rosalind Franklin Institute in, uh, in England is dedicated to transforming life science through interdisciplinary research and technology development. And they are actually working on the COVID-19 nanomolecule spike. And they've gotten to the point where they have found like a little nanomolecule that basically makes it impossible for that outer spike molecule to attach. And this oh. is, yeah. So like they've published their findings, you know, they're waiting for peer review, but like, this is all due to this idea of doing interdisciplinary research that she started or, or maybe not started, but like she did a really great she was job dedicated of it. to. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think, I think one of the things that like ultimately stands out as her legacy in, in everything that I've researched is yes, she faced these hardships and yes, she had, you know, a lot of controversy in her life, but at the end of the day, all she really cared about, she wanted to do good work. She wanted to make sure it was, it was accurate. It was honest. It was, you know, done in the best possible way. And she just, she had so much integrity about it. If you'd like to learn more about Rosalind Franklin, we've got some great resources for you in the show notes, including a book written by her sister and a play about Rosalind's life. If you enjoy listening to the Wild and Curious podcast and would like to contribute to helping us make this thing run, you can. You can Venmo us at The Wild and Curious or via PayPal at paypal.me slash the wild and curious anything you send big or small will go towards the costs of running a podcast that's dismantling the patriarchy it means so much to us when people rate our show on itunes and leave reviews we read those sweet nothings and yes we cry about them we also love it when people send our podcast to someone who they think will enjoy it feminists sharing feminist content is the best 